third grade in Berlin. Super. Thanks, guys. If you were to look at a Google Maps picture, like the one that you see up there, which is hard to make out, if you were to look at that Google Maps picture street view, uh, you're looking at the east side of Jerusalem. You're looking at the east side of the temple. You're standing on the east side, looking at the east side. Let's see, the temple right here. And if you were standing there looking at Jerusalem from the east side, you would be seeing the greatest location, the greatest historical place, the greatest historical significance uh, known to humanity. Not because of what you see there. As a matter of fact, when you look at the top 100 um, landmarks in the world, I looked at two different sites and uh, you don't see that. You don't see that temple when you see the top 100 places in the world. And yet, because of what happened there, you're looking at the most historically significant place ever, which is pretty interesting to think about. If you were standing there, behind you would be the Dead Sea. Um, Behind you, immediately behind you, would be where Jesus ascended. You're standing on the Mount of Olives if you're standing where that Google car or whatever took the picture uh, would be. So you're standing on the Mount of Olives. So that means you're looking down uh, on the Garden of, of Gethsemane down in here in this valley. You can't really make it out here, but all of these, this whiteness would be the, the tombs. These are tombs here, all of the many whitewashed tombs. You're looking essentially, though you can't see it here, where Jesus was crucified because it was outside of the city, where he was raised from the dead, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is now. Um, It's the most important place in all of history. Uh, The temple, if you were to be able to walk around the temple over here, which is where Jesus would have confronted the money changers, at least the temple walls, the temple isn't there. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Luke 19 where Jesus would have been standing where the picture's taken as he enters into the city to do the most important, significant, historical things ever known to man, not to mention spiritually speaking. But the picture should have uh, our attention because what we see in Luke 19 and Luke leading up to Luke 20 really all takes place right there. It all takes place right there. As we look at Luke 19, verses 28 to 48, we'll be able to draw four conclusions about Jesus as we see him arriving into Jerusalem. Four conclusions about Jesus as we see him arriving into Jerusalem. Number one, Jesus is what the world has been waiting for. Jesus is what the world has been waiting for, whether they know it or not. We see this in verses 28 to 40. Let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to see as Jesus stands there and as he begins to approach, we'll see that Jesus is what the world has been waiting for. Verse 28 says of Luke 19, And when he had said these things, 
So reaching back to earlier, that would be things about himself, things about himself being the long-awaited, forever-ruling, reigning king. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is what we should expect by now in Luke. We should expect him to be going up to Jerusalem because even back in Luke 9, he specifically said, I've set my face toward Jerusalem. And throughout, we've been seeing him and hearing him say things like that. It's always been about Jerusalem. It's always been about Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. And Jesus, if he's the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited, ultimate, forever reigning king, he's the offspring of David, King David, King of Israel, who would have had his palace in Jerusalem, the capital city. So it makes sense that he's going up to Jerusalem if he is the ultimate King David, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate forever ruling king. It only makes sense that this is what is happening. Verse 29 says, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, Again, he's standing right where that photo was. At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat yet, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set, they set Jesus on it. Just one simple comment before we read the next verse, and that would be, Notice how in control Jesus is. I think that's what's to be underscored here. He's been in control all along. He hasn't gone to Jerusalem a day early. He's going when he wants to go, the right time to go. And he's going, and he's going according to plan. You go find the colt. You'll find the colt. Here's what's going to be asked. Here's how you're going to answer. He's going to enter, yes, on a colt as one, never been ridden before. Um, royalty, significance. But notice that he, he's in charge of all of this. He's entering according to his plan on his terms. Then verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And we call this the triumphal entry. This is it. This is the triumphal entry. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what they've been waiting for. This is what Israel has professed to be waiting for now for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is, this is what it's been all about. What's the significance of the cult? Well, for whatever reason, Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe because he, he assumes we'll know. But Luke doesn't tell us what the significance of the cult is. But John, John chapter 12 makes it patently clear what the significance of the cult is. Quoting Zechariah 9.9, the Old Testament prophet talking about the coming of the Messiah, the forever ruling reigning king. Zechariah 9.9, you can write it in your margin if you'd like. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
referencing Israel, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's something about it being regal and unique because they're laying their clothes down, a clean road, never been ridden, and yet he's coming in on a colt, a donkey, or something humble about it. But more importantly than the humility is the fact, what's important about it is it's prophetic. This is how Messiah will come. And this is how Messiah is coming. He's the one. He's what they've been waiting for. Certainly it's what Israel's been waiting for. We're going to see it's what the whole world has been waiting for. Then look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Maybe put your finger there just for a moment at verse 37. All the mighty works that they'd seen, they'd seen Messiah evidencing works, haven't they? Time and time again, at all different turns, he's, he's the one, he's been doing the works of Isaiah 61. He's been healing, he's been restoring, he's been doing all of these things that Messiah would do. He's been proving, he's been giving a taste that he really is the long-awaited king. Restoring, getting rid of all things that, that, that harm humanity. He's the one who can do it. And so they're, they're praising God loudly for all of those things they'd seen. He must be the one, then 38 says, saying, Blessed is the King, blessed is the Messiah, blessed is the Christ who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118, verse 26. We read it just a little while ago in our scripture reading. They're, they're, they're singing Psalm 118, that messianic song. Then verse 38 says, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's pretty profound when you stop and think about it. And it's more profound in, a, in just a few moments when we, we see the peace theme coming up again. But what are they saying? He's the one. Praise God. Singing Psalm 118. And then if Psalm 118, what we've been saying all of these years, waiting, waiting, waiting at Passover, if he's really that one, and the evidence shows, the historic evidence shows that he is that one, then we would be able to say this. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's the greatest thing. He's the greatest one. Glory in the highest. Peace in heaven. Fascinating. What would the significance be of peace in heaven? Well, if you have the Messiah, He is the, therefore, ultimate mediator between the righteous God and the unrighteous humanity. And there has been conflict now for millennia between the two. And now a righteous mediator representing the people, the ultimate mediator, 
If He's coming, it means there's peace in heaven. And at Christmas time, we cite Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we say, peace on earth. Well, if there's peace in heaven, there's peace on earth. If the Messiah, the ultimate mediator, the God-man is here, we've got peace in heaven and peace on earth because we have, for trusting in Him, let me reference mentally at least Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God. It's because of Him. That's what the world has been waiting for. Know it or not. That's what the world's been waiting for. It's the ultimate. He's, he's, he's the Prince of Peace. Again, Isaiah 9. Know it or not, He's what the whole world has been waiting for. That's why we would say when we, we see that picture, greatest place in all of human history because of what He will do there. What He's about to do there as He descends, as He does His final earthly work, as He gives Himself up, as He is crucified, as He is raised. It's peace in heaven. It's peace on earth. Prince of peace. It's what the world's been waiting for. It's where peace is secured. Verse 39 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How about that? Okay, so, there's no reason to laugh. It's just like so absolutely ironic and so bizarrely insane. I have to chuckle. They command Jesus. If it doesn't come out in your English Bible well enough, it's there in the Greek text. They command Jesus. They tell him what he must do. Okay, If he is the, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the religious leaders are, are, are so, so perverted. I mean, these are people who say they're waiting for the Prince of Peace. The Jewish religious leaders. And they're saying to him, who's give, given historic evidence time and time again that he really is the one. And they command the one with all authority. Irony. <laughs> they command the one with all authority, which you ought not be doing. Shut up your disciples. It, it, it's just overflowing with irony and ridiculousness and stupidity. If Jesus is merely a prophet, then he should comply. He will comply. If he's merely a good person or a good teacher, he should and will comply. Right? I mean, they're totally in the right if he's a good moral teacher and that's all. If he's just a good example, the ultimate example even, he's going to rebuke his disciples. But in verse 40 it says... He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, if my disciples were silent, my followers were silent, the very stones would cry out. No one has ever said a truer thing. No one has ever been more right than to say I'm the one. 
In fact, it's so patently true what they're saying that if they weren't saying it, inanimate objects would say it. I hope you got out yesterday. It was a beautiful day. It was amazing. I was in my basement, you know, for most of the day at my own doing because whatever. So, but at like 3.30, I got outside and it was just like, oh, this is, this is absolutely amazing. Going past a place where they sell rocks of all places. And I just had to chuckle out loud. The creation even knows. Creation even knows. Even if they didn't do it, the rocks would do it. This is what the whole world has been waiting for. Since Genesis chapter 3, this is what the whole world has been waiting for. It reminds me of Colossians 1. Through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things. It's It's cosmic whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8. The whole world is broken. The whole world is waiting for this moment to happen. It's the most important historical place ever. Because if He's the Messiah, that means... How about this? He fixes everything. That's the weightiness of Messiah. Again, it's what the whole world has been waiting for. Before we move on, I, I, I hate to mention it because it's a downer, because it's meant to not be a downer. This is so true and so right. This is such great reality. But, but think about the, the perversity of the religious leaders who should be leading the chorus. And they're going against creation. <laughs> they're going against their own scriptures that they profess to be expert in. And they're saying, tell them to shut up. Quite a condemnation in comparison to the human beings. These human beings were in denial of it. Okay, now we come to a second conclusion about Jesus. As we see him arrive into Jerusalem, there's another conclusion, and let's, let's describe it this way. Jesus is rejected at devastating cost. Jesus is rejected at devastating cost. We're going to learn that in his triumphal entry. We see it in verses 41 to 44. Jesus is rejected at devastating cost. As we read, uh, as we prepare to read, um, be thinking about Jeremiah the prophet. Be thinking about Isaiah the prophet. And if you don't know what to be thinking when you're thinking about Isaiah and Jeremiah, um, they're Israelites, but as prophets, and so they're burdened for their nation when their nation is living in sin. They're burdened, they're broken at times, they're, 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 they're weeping at times, but they also have a job to do from God, and that's to pr pronounce judgment, because they've not been honoring Him as God, even though they say they do. So, so be thinking of the brokenness, be thinking of the, 
message that's strong amidst the brokenness. Jeremiah 6, Isaiah 29. Now let's read verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, this is Jesus drawing near, seeing the city, looking at the city, he wept over it. Not a tear in the eye, but a weeping. Saying, would that you, he addresses the city as if the city were a person, would that you, even you, especially you, this is Israel, this is, this is Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. In my Bible, I circled peace there, and I circled peace in verse 38, because remember, He's the one that secures peace. It's what they want as a nation, as a capital city. They want peace. They want restoration. They want to be safe. Would that you, on this day, know what would bring peace? You should know. You don't know. This is terrible. Verse 42 then goes on to say, quoting Jesus, But now, they are hidden from your eyes. And whether we like it or not, or we're comfortable with it or not, that, that's a theme that comes up so much in the Bible when it comes to our relationship with God as human beings, and that is where, where truth is rejected, blindness comes. Blindness leads to greater blindness. Rejection leads to, 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 to further exclusion. Verse 43 says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade. See, they don't want that. They want peace. But Jesus is saying, a day, The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Again, addressing the nation as if the nation were a parent an adult, a person, your children within you, that would be the people, and they did not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is dreadful. Jesus is addressing Jerusalem, capital city of Israel, God has been so gracious to them that they weren't, they weren't special because they were inherently special. God made them special according to grace. And He's given them grace upon grace and they've stiff-armed Him time and time again, which is bizarre. And yet He's been long-suffering and patient and He's been gracious. Again, gracious, gracious, gracious. Sending the prophets, gracious. Sending the prophets, gracious. And now He's saying, look, this is what is going to happen to you. Because you're going to reject me, the one you say you're waiting for, and you're obviously not waiting for me, because you're rejecting me, what's going to happen to you is you are going to be utterly destroyed. When he says not a stone will be left on another stone, that, that's utter destruction. It's not that we, we experienced an assault as a, as a capital city and as a nation, and so we're just going to rebuild. No, you're going to be 
devastated. And when Jesus is considering that reality to happen to God's chosen nation, to the people of God, he weeps. This is awful. The temple is there. It is where human beings go, again, as odd as it might seem to us in the 21st century in middle America, where human beings go to officially, uniquely, specially meet with God. It's going to be destroyed. It's no wonder Jesus is weeping. And in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed. Just as Jesus said it would be. And Jesus weeps knowing what will happen to Israel, the temple, the people. We don't need the picture again, but back to that Google Maps street view photograph. It should be not only on the list of 100 most significant landmarks, the temple should be number one on the list. It would be number one on the list. Royalty coming from other nations, coming to see. Not now. Destroyed. Utterly destroyed. It's cool to go there now and you can see how they've put the pieces back together and tried to rebuild things and it's why the rocks don't match. The stones don't match. Because of the spiritual significance... Because of the history, we go and we say, that's awesome, that's interesting. Should be. At least from a human perspective, you understand. If Israel would have seen Jesus for who he really is. Most amazing historic sight ever. In principle, at least, he's addressing the nation here, but in principle, given the fact that Jesus has been addressing individuals throughout his earthly ministry, given the fact that we also, each of us as individuals, relate to God through Jesus and embracing Jesus or not, uh, we, we can certainly see the devastating kinds of things that happen when you don't see Jesus for who he is. Hopefully it helps us think rightly about Jesus. Hopefully it helps us to think rightly about His second coming. When the very one you need for protection is rejected, destruction comes. You need Him for peace. 
Let's move on to the third conclusion about Jesus as we see him approaching Jerusalem in this super important, significant time. Number three, Jesus is enraged. Jesus is enraged by make-believe Christianity. Jesus is enraged by make-believe Christianity. We're going to see this in verses 45 to 46, and uh, I'll just give a quick qualifier, and that would be, you don't have to send me an email saying that Christians weren't called Christians until the book of Acts. You don't have to do that. I know that. Um, But it does give me opportunity to make the point that Jesus is Messiah, exact same reality. Jesus is Christ. Messiah means Christ. Christ means Messiah. Okay? One's a Greek word. One's a Hebrew word meant to be the same reality. So every time you read your New Testament, it says Jesus Christ. You could say Jesus Messiah. Every time you read your Old Testament and it talks about the anointed one or the Messiah, it could read Christ. In fact, if you had a Greek version of the Old Testament, it would be Christ, Christos. I make the point because these are the people who profess to be Christians in the sense that they profess to be Messiah followers. Radically so. If they're Jews, they're, they're all about being Christians. Not in our sense, but in, in Messiah follower sense. And so keep that in mind. In that sense, they're, they're Christians. Messiah followers, Messiah awaiters, Messiah Messiah loyals. Jesus is enraged by make-believe Messiah-anity, if that makes you feel better. (laughs) Make-believe Christianity. Hold on to your hats for this one. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Literally, if I recall correctly, you've made it a cave. So, house of prayer where you meet with God and can talk to God in in the special communing kind of way. That's what it's meant to be, the temple. And you've turned it into a cave where where marauders and, 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 and... Criminals hide, waiting, lurking in the shadows. They can steal people's belongings, rob them and beat them up. And so Jesus locks and loads on the quote-unquote Christians. Here you're supposed to, to, to have this unique place where people can come and they can experience fellowship with God like they can't experience it anywhere else. And instead what happens is they get robbed. What's more interesting, if we want to dig a little bit deeper, when Jesus says, in verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. He's referencing Isaiah 56. In the actual text of Isaiah 56, 7, I'll just read it. You can listen. Uh, We hear these words. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer. And here's what is not emphasized in our text, but it has to do with the context in Isaiah 56. A house of prayer for all peoples. 
So the Isaiah passage actually is emphasizing Gentile inclusion. Non-Jewish people can come too. And how can non-Jewish people commune with, know, experience the one true God? They come to the temple for that. Let's put it this way. They should be able to come to the temple for that. So it's one of the ministries of the Jews, you might say. It's one they're supposed to have. And this shouldn't come out of left field, given the fact that the Abrahamic covenant, which they would have known for memory, which is referred to again and again and again, even just in Genesis, when God makes His great promise to Abraham the pagan, He talks about all the nations being blessed through Abraham and his relationship with God. Even back then, there's the promise, not just, not just for the Jews. Yes, they are the chosen nation. Yes, they are the ones who have the temple. But all along, there's been a promise to Jew and non-Jew. And even this temple has a place for non-Jews where they can, exp- again, in all the best senses, experience God. And the Jews haven't done it. Instead, what's happened is it's become a perverted, terrible place. Or how about this? No Gentile in their right mind would want to go there. It's supposed to be a house of prayer where you meet with God. It's not. It's all about corruption. It's all about manipulating people. And this enrages Jesus. Jesus is dead set against these professing Messiahans, these professing Christians, because they're not real. They're not following their real God given ministry, they're in charge. It's terrible. It's awful. Jesus is enraged. Maybe just a couple of observations before we move on. One would be, it's interesting that what started out as a good thing became a bad thing. So, There was a temple tax that had to be paid and currency needed to be changed. That would be a good ministry. A ministry of love for neighbor. Let us help you. We're not here to make a profit. We'll we'll just help you change your money so you can pay the temple tax. That's a good thing. Uh, Not only that, where, where people are going to come and travel from all around days and days and days sometimes, and they're coming to the temple, and they need to bring a sacrifice, the best kind of animal they could find, you know, spotless, without blemish, pretty hard to do if you're traveling from very far and you're not wealthy. And so what we'll do is we'll provide animals for purchase. 
That would be part of obeying God's law. Wouldn't it be an application because we're going to love neighbor as ourselves? Started as a good thing. I maybe want to make the point, I do want to make the point by way of application, a good thing can become a bad thing. And here it's the worst thing of all. It's the worst thing of all. Maybe also another observation would be regarding outsiders. When outsiders can't come into the inside and receive what they need most, which is peace with God. A terrible thing has happened. That is what has happened here. The outsiders could not receive what they needed most, which was peace with God, to the point they didn't even want to come there. There's something about that that we can learn from. Listen to this. One way we can gauge being off track is when what we offer outsiders is in fact not the very thing that they need, which is to experience peace with God. That comes through a Christ who is the Christ of Scripture that we see here. Okay, number four. Fourthly and finally, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, a fourth conclusion about Jesus we see with his arrival into Jerusalem. Number four, Jesus is the gospel preacher... Rejected by make-believe Christians. Jesus is the gospel preacher rejected by make-believe Christians. I'm using Christian in the same sense I was using it in point three. We see this in verses 47 and 48. In verse 47 it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. What was he teaching? Well, chapter 20, verse 1, tells us what he was teaching. He was teaching the gospel. It says he was teaching the gospel. So he's teaching daily in the temple. What is he teaching? He's teaching the gospel, and that's the good news about him, his work, his kingdom. He's the center of it all. But Jesus is teaching the gospel every day in the temple. Okay? chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, that would be the leaders of the people representing the people, were seeking to destroy him. So he's teaching the gospel every day and that's causing them to want to seek to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Listen to this. Again, the professing Christians are in fact not. And they are the ones who are so angry by Jesus and the gospel. It makes other people angry, not just professing Messiahans, professing Christians. It's an offense to others. But let's just at least see here that these who profess to be Christ followers are the ones who are offended by Christ and by His gospel. And that's something that becomes crystal clear as He enters into the city in the triumphal entry. 
they don't like to hear so much Christ-centered gospel preaching. I heard someone say, Pat Abendroth preaches the gospel too much. And I thought, that's ironic, I'm preaching through Luke. Hello. Well, these guys thought Jesus preached the gospel too much. He's doing it every day. It's all about me. It's all about me. You're a sinner. You're incapable. I am the deliverer. I am the one. It's all about me, Jesus is saying. He's making it emphatic. Therefore, how about it's all of grace. It's nothing that you can accomplish. It's nothing that you can do. Yeah, he preaches the gospel too much. Jesus needs a little law. He needs a little moralism. That's what made him so mad. The professing Christians. So let's not think we're above it. But just know that when you think that way, you're on the wrong team. It's the very thing that upsets them so much. But again, before we start throwing rocks at people who are outsiders, which is a dangerous thing to do, remember... We should expect outsiders to act like outsiders, by the way. We might want to think about ourselves. Do we see Jesus for who He really is? Do we really come to Jesus on Jesus' terms? Is the Bible a book of morals to follow? Well, yeah, there's all kinds of morals and there's all kinds of law and it needs to be preached. Why? So that you can see that you're incapable and you need Christ. And then on the other side of it, then if you belong to Christ, you obviously want to be a follower of His, yes. But this is the sticking point where it's all of grace, only by faith, in Him. And the fakers don't like so much gospel preaching. But think about it. If you're self-righteous, you yourself are a law keeper, and you do it, and you preach that to other people to get them to do it, and then they need to follow your teaching to get there themselves. (laughs) It's no wonder you don't like Jesus. He's the one who fulfills everything. See, this is good news to us as Christians. It's meant to be good news to us. But the very thing that's good news is offensive to those who are faker Christians. Now maybe we see why some have said, and I borrowed the title from others, it's the not-so-triumphal entry. But if you know the whole picture and the big picture, I think we're going to say it is the triumphal entry. (laughs) It is. It's according to redemptive plan. Psalm 118, verse 22. We'll hear this later in Luke's gospel account, I believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So even this tragedy, this terribleness, rejecting him, is actually part of the plan because that key stone is going to be the chief cornerstone. And he will build his church on that cornerstone, according to Ephesians chapter 2. It's all going to be built there. It's awesome. It's an awesome thing. 
So we're just entering the city in the life and ministry of Jesus. The drama is going to, to unfold even further. We're going to see the rest of his work, and hopefully we can look forward to that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the gospel preacher. Not only that, he himself is the good one of the good news. Thank you that in him we can find forgiveness and in him we can find peace with you. Not because of our works, but because of his works. And may that cause us to be motivated and cause us to want to sing his praises and acknowledge his sovereignty and his goodness and his kindness. Thank you for being so kind to us. As our minds are filled with so many different things about life and about work and about school and about politics and sports and so many other things, thank you so much for your kindness and patience of bringing us back here again and again, reminding us what will matter forever. And in all the right senses, may that temper all of the other things and bring them into perspective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.